I had every intention on preaching on Romans this morning, and, uh, but as you know, uh, this week uh, we kicked off our Ironman program, uh, another book study together uh, for the next eight weeks or so, and uh, we're reading through a book called The New Man, and the subtitle of that book is Becoming a Man After God's Own Heart. And, uh, and so on Wednesday night and, and Friday morning, we had an opportunity uh, as men to consider, well, what does that actually mean? We, we, we we're familiar with that expression, um, a man after God's own heart, but what does that actually mean? And um, I had a great time thinking through that and studying uh, about that and sharing that with the guys and interacting with the guys. And as I was working on uh, my message for this morning in Romans, I kept thinking about that. And um, it was very encouraging. It was very compelling to me personally. I thought, you know, this is something I think our whole church would benefit from, uh, considering what it means to be a person uh, after God's own heart. And so I called an audible, which I guess you're allowed to do if you're the quarterback, right, from time to time. Uh, hopefully it's a spirit-inspired uh, or spirit-motivated uh, uh, audible. And so um, I want to consider this morning what it, what it means to be a person after God's own heart, not just a man after God's own heart, because I'm aware that there's women here and, and there's teenagers here and there's kids here. And so what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? What does it mean to be a, be a woman after God's own heart? What does it mean to be a teenager after God's own heart? What, what does it mean to be a kid after God's own heart? Now, I assume that, that you're all familiar with that a phrase, a man after God's own heart, right? We, we've all heard that. If we've heard it once, we've heard it a, a hundred times. And, and when we hear that expression, who is the first person that typically comes into our minds? Who comes into your mind when you hear that expression, a man after God's own heart? Hopefully you're not like me. <laughs> we think of David. Why? Because that's what God said about David. In fact, David was the only person in the Bible who God ever described as a man after his own heart. And just to show you where that is, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. 1 Samuel chapter 13, 14. And this is where we find the expression, a man after God's own heart. Samuel is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is what he recorded about his interaction with Saul and David, 1 Samuel 13, 14, but now your kingdom shall not endure. He's speaking to Saul here. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. I would encourage you to underline that, bracket that, star that. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And so here's a reference to David. Uh, a man after God's own heart. This expression or phrase is repeated one other time 
uh, in the scriptures. It's in the New Testament. Turn over to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Uh, Paul uh, is on his first missionary journey. And uh, he's in a synagogue uh, in Pamph- uh, Pamphylia. And he gets up to share the gospel. And the way he goes about it with a group of Jewish people is to recount the history of Israel. And so in Acts chapter 13, verse 21, he talks about how after the judges, God raised up Samuel to be a prophet, and then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, here it is, a man after my heart who will do all my will. And so when we hear this expression, a man after God's own heart, we naturally and rightfully think of David. But when we think of David, what is often the first thing that comes to our mind? It may be that he was a shepherd. We think about his years of shepherding the sheep when he wrote many of the the Psalms and uh, he was a psalmist, he was a poet, he was a musician, he was, he was a warrior. We, of course, we, we think of David and Goliath. Um, he was a theologian. I mean, you look at all the things that he said in the, in the book of Psalms. Again, he, he, he understood the character of God. And he helps us understand the character of God. But it, it's hard to think of David and not think about the fact that he was an adulterer, that he was a murderer. And so the question is, how are we to reconcile God's honorable description of David as a man after his own heart with David's deplorable transgression against God? I mean, in light of his sin, for God to consider him a man after his own heart, it seems, at least to me, to be a contradiction, an enigma of sorts, something that makes you kind of scratch your head and wonder what's wrong with this picture. And so I think the question we really need to ask ourselves is, okay, what does it mean then to be a man after God's own heart? What does it mean? And for starters, we can conclude that being a man after God's own heart does not mean you have to be perfect because David was far from perfect. He had these epic successes and these epic failures. Everything that David did seemed to be epic. And so I guess we could start by answering the question, what, what does being a man after God's heart not mean? <laughs> it doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you're faultless, flawless. So what does it, what does it mean then? to be a man after God's own heart. Well, you may use the expression from time to time when you see someone or you interact with someone, you, you say, you know, you know what? You're a man after my own heart. Or you're, you're, a, you're, you're a woman after my own heart. In fact, I think I said that about Raul at man camp. He walked into the, the meeting room with his Bible 
and a package of Oreos. And I was like, dude, you're a man after my own heart. You got the word of God and you got Oreos. What else do you need? That's life right there in a nutshell. And uh, what do we mean by that? When we say that, what we're saying is, you know what? You're a lot like me. We have a lot of similarities. We, we share the same preferences, the same passions, the, the same priorities. And so generally speaking, the fact that God referred to David as a man after his own heart simply means that David loved the same things that God loved. He shared God's passions. He shared God's priorities. But let's be more specific. I, I think the key to understanding what what it means to be a man after God's own heart is examining the specific context in which uh, this phrase was first used. And when we look at the context, um, back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, you can't help but see this stark contrast that Samuel, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, made between Saul, the king that God rejected, and David, who he anointed to replace him. In other words, Saul was not a man after God's own heart, and David was. And so based on the, the, the context in which God called David a man after his own heart, and also based on the contrast between David and Saul, we can conclude that there are at least three essential traits that distinguish someone as a person after God's own heart. What does it mean for you to be a man after God's own heart? What does it mean for you as a woman to be a woman after God's own heart? What does it mean for you as a teenager to be a teenager after God's own heart? What does it mean for you as a child, a kid, to be a kid or a child after God's own heart? Well, it means at least three things. Three things. Number one, it means that you're obedient. That you're obedient. And we're gonna see again the contrast. David was obedient as opposed to Saul, who was, what? Disobedient. Look back at 1 Samuel chapter 13, and again, we're gonna just read through uh, uh, the account of, of Saul and, and, and David, and hopefully let the scriptures just kind of speak for themselves, and it's, you'll, you'll draw uh, conclusions uh, on your own, and, and you'll see the implications just as I'm reading this without, with very little comment. But, but look at 1 Samuel chapter 13, and uh, the context here is uh, that uh, Israel had asked for a king like all the other nations, and so uh, they, they chose Saul, uh, mainly because of his stature. He was a head and shoulders above everyone else, and he just kind of looked like a king. And, and yeah, that's the guy we want uh, to be our king because he makes us look good. He's big, he's strong, he's, 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 he's good looking. And so they say, we want him. And so Samuel, under the direction of, of God, anoints Saul to be the, the, the first king of Israel. And uh, he began to reign. And one of the first things he does is goes, he basically picks a fight with the Philistines in 1 Samuel 13. And uh, his son, Jonathan, uh, goes uh, to the garrison of the Philistines. Um, he, he smites it. Um, and uh, basically, the Philistines get gets hacked off, 
And uh, all Israel hears the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines. This is verse 4. And also that Israel has become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, and the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cl cliffs and cellars and in pits. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people following him trembled, followed him trembling. And so Saul is, is in, a, in a pickle in the first few months of being in office, if you will, uh, the office of king. And uh, he's, got, he's got the nation uh, trembling uh, or scattering. They're just running away. They're, they're, they're getting out of town. They're, they're leaving because they're all afraid of the Philistines. And now let's pick up the story in verse eight. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. So before a king would go into war, he would want the blessing of God, and so they would sacrifice an offering, and Samuel being the prophet, the priest at the time, he was the only one appointed by God to do that. But Saul had his back against the wall. The Philistines were camped against them. His people were scared. They were fleeing. Uh, he was getting impatient. He didn't know what else to do. He's like, hey, Samuel, where are you, man? I need you now. And when he couldn't wait any longer, he went ahead and, and offered the, the burnt offering and the peace offering. And look at verse 10. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, talk about God's perfect timing here. Behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling in Michmash. Therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Now, I want you to notice just initially here, again, just observing the text, we're gonna see a pattern develop in the life of Saul in regards to how he deals with his sin, and particularly when he's confronted about his sin. Um, what does he do here? Well, well first of all, he, he notice how he, he runs out to meet Samuel. Uh, this is kind of like when I was a kid and, and I disobeyed my mom and my, my dad was on a business trip, and that was most of the weeks of our life. And growing up, my dad was on a business trip from Monday to Friday, and so um, I would get in trouble, and my mom would spank me, and uh, my parents never read the books that are out today that says, you know, you only should spank your kid once. You know, there's no, you know, kind of double jeopardy. You can't, you can't get spanked a second time for the same offense, right? Just, it, you know, deal with it. Hug him, pray with him, send him off, you know, he's good to go. Well, they didn't read that book. So there was no such thing as, as double jeopardy in my house, okay? It was like, I got double duty. And apparently God knew I needed that because um, I was a wild child. And uh, so my mom would always say, you know, she'd get done spanking me. And instead of just saying, I love you and it's gonna be okay, she said, now you wait till your father comes home. 
And so I lived from, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, whatever, in fear of the day, you know, seeing my dad come in the driveway from his business trip. And so I would wait on Friday afternoon. I'd get in the habit of waiting, looking out the front windows for him to come. And he'd drive in the driveway and he'd go down to the, to the garage and I would run out the front door and I'd run down the garage and I'd be standing right next to the car when he got out. Hey, dad, how's it going? Can I get your luggage? Can I get your suitcase for you and bring it into the house? And I'm sure my dad, he never did this visually, but I'm sure he's thinking, oh, great. What did he do? What did he do this time? Because I was just kind of kissing up to dad and trying to make it like, hey, how's it going, dad? Good to see you. And, you know, kind of compensate for the fact that I knew I had done something wrong. Well, it never worked. I usually got the belt within about five minutes of him walking in the house. So um, somehow my mom and him had communicated and a judgment day had come. But notice that that's what Samuel or, or Saul does. He runs out and meets, he meets uh, Samuel. But notice he, he, he doesn't take responsibility for his sin. Notice um, he doesn't own up to it. He, he, he doesn't admit that he sinned. He, he, he justifies his sin. He makes excuses for his sin. He, he, he shifts blame to others. In fact, he even lies about it. Oh, I saw the people scouring, so I had to do something. In fact, I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. I didn't want to do it, but I, I had no other choice. And, and so, Samuel, you know, you actually were the one who put me in this situation. If you had, if you had been punctual, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Well, keep that in the back of your mind because we're going to see that play itself out over and over again. Verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, you've acted foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Why did God reject Saul and replace him with David? It says right there, because you did not keep what the Lord commanded you. You've been disobedient. Well, this pattern of disobedience continues. That wasn't the first or the last time Saul disobeyed. Turn over to chapter 15. And here we have the account of Saul's disobedience when it came to uh, destroying the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were the sworn enemies of the Israelites. In fact, they were the first people group that attacked the Israelites when they were escaping from Egypt. And, and God uh, wanted to destroy them and make an example out of them that, hey, this is, this is what happens when you mess with my people. And so he told Saul, I want you to go and destroy the Amalekites. Just wipe them out completely. And so Saul did. Verse 7, this is chapter 15, verse 7, Saul defeated the Amalekites. Notice verse 8, he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Okay, so we've got a problem already. What part of wiping out everybody don't you understand, right? 
well, what is this keeping the king alive thing? And utterly destroying all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the ox and the fatlings and the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. Verse 10, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. In other words, he's being disobedient and Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul and it was told Samuel, and it was told Samuel saying, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgog. Now that's another problem we don't have time to talk about, setting up a monument for yourself taking glory away from the Lord and putting it on yourself. Verse 13, Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, here it is, taking the initiative, running down the driveway to the garage to meet your dad, right, when you've disobeyed. Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. So he's basically lying, bold-faced lying. I've done exactly what I was commanded to do. And Samuel said, well, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? In other words, what is this? What is this? And, and again, notice how Saul responds when he's confronted. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and auction to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Again, you see how he's shifting the blame? He's not taking any responsibility here. He's not owning up. This all it's the people. It was their idea. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. Samuel's like, or Saul's like, okay, what, what did he say? Verse 17, Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, the fight, and fight against them until they are all exterminated? Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And then again, notice Saul's response. And Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So what is he claiming there? What is Saul claiming? partial obedience, which in God's eyes is what? Disobedience. I did some of what you said. I did most of what you said, but no, you didn't do all that I said. And then once again, he throws the people under the bus. Well, it was their idea to bring some of this stuff back to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And then Samuel said, verse 22, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And here is the classic statement you all have heard before. Behold, to what? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination and insubordination is an, as an iniquity and idolatry because you've rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. 
What is the issue here? Saul, just obey. That's all I'm asking. Why? Because that matters more to me than sinning and then sacrificing, right? Just obey. It would have been better for you to just obey me than to offer a sacrifice. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned and I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. And so you're like, oh, wait, there's, there's hope for Saul. He's, he's, it looks like he's acknowledging his sin and he's admitting the fear of man and following the crowd and peer pressure. And verse 25, now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return for, for, with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. It appears that Saul was sorry for his sin but he really wanted Samuel to come back with him to save face. And when he said, no, I'm not coming, he grabbed a hold of his robe. No, don't, don't leave me. And he tore the robe, again, showing that, that this was probably more worldly sorrow than, than true godly sorrow. But notice how he, he ends here. He says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Who is that neighbor, that better neighbor that he's referring to? David. And how was he better than Saul? He was obedient. Look at Acts chapter 13. And we're going to go back here a number of times. So you may want to just keep your finger there or something there to mark it. But Acts chapter 13, again, the context. We're looking at the context in which um, these phrases or this expression, a man after God's own heart was used once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament. We're looking at the context and we're also looking at the contrast that's made in that context between Saul and David. Once again, look at Acts chapter 13, verse 22, uh, verse 21. Then, he, then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, here it is, who will do all my will. Not who'll do part of my will, some of my will, most of my will, the good majority of my will. No, he'll do all my will. Again, the issue here, the contrast is disobedient Saul, obedient David. So, so obedience is, is really the first essential trait of a man or woman or teenager or kid uh, after God's own heart. Are you obedient to the commands of Scripture? And if you are, then you qualify as someone who is after God's own heart. There's a second trait 
that I think you, we, we can conclude is, is essential to being a, a person after God's own heart, and that is that you're dependent. You're dependent. Um, and, and David was dependent as opposed to Saul, who was, what's the opposite of being dependent on the Lord? Of course, we're talking about dependence on God. What was the opposite of dependence on the Lord? It's being self-sufficient or, or self-reliant. And, and that, was, that was Saul. And we're going to see that. You can see that contrasted, this dependence and this self-reliance or self-sufficiency in the account of David and Goliath. Uh, look at 1 Samuel 17. Uh, by the way, in the meantime, uh, chapter 16, we're jumping over chapter 16, but this is the account of when Samuel actually anointed David to be king. And if you remember, he was sent to the family of uh, the house of Jesse, who had uh, eight sons. And, uh, and, and when Samuel showed up, um, it's interesting how this thing plays itself out. Um, verse six, when they entered, all the sons came in and he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me just because of his stature. Again, another Saul-like individual. Wow, look at him. He's impressive. Surely this is the guy that God has chosen uh, to, to replace um, Saul. Uh, it seems that Samuel didn't know exactly who God had in mind at this point. We do, of course, looking back. He didn't know. He just walked into the house and saw this big, strong, strapping guy and, saw, and just assumed this is the guy. Look at verse 7 of 1 Samuel 16, 7, and we can't just skip over this verse. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him for God sees not as man sees for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? The heart. This is what we're talking about, being a person after God's own heart. God doesn't care about the externals. He wants to know what's going on in your heart. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Uh, you got any more kids? Oh yeah, we got this one little guy, the youngest. He's out in the, out in the, out in the fields taking, taking care of the flock. And Samuel's like, go get him. And so he anoints David. And uh, the next thing we see in, in chapter 17 is all of David's brothers have gone off to war. The Philistines are uh, uh, arrayed against them. And uh, apparently David was too young uh, to, to be enlisted. And so he was at home with his father, Jesse. His, his dad said, hey, let's go. Let, let's get some stuff. I want, I want you to bring some stuff to the front lines and, and kind of some care packages to, 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 to your older brothers and, and bring back news to me how, how things are going. And so David's like, sure. And so he heads out there. And the first thing that happens when he gets there David gets to the front lines, and what does he see? What does he hear? This big nine-foot Philistine mocking God and the armies of Israel. Of course, it was Goliath, and he's like, who is this guy? What, 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 you guys just going to let him do this? You're going to let him just mock God and mock you? And of course, his, his older brother's like, David, this is why we didn't want you to come. And, and just, you're, you're embarrassing us. Come on, just, just give us the stuff. Tell dad we're fine. Get out of here. 
He's like, what are you guys, aren't you guys going to do anything? And uh, we see in verse 31, when the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. Saul was intrigued by this little whippersnapper who was talking smack, right, about, about this, this Goliath. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistines. So David comes and says, hey, Saul, don't, don't sweat it, man. Don't, don't, don't worry. I'll go. I'll fight the Philistine. And by the way, who should have been leading the charge against Goliath in total dependence upon God? Saul, the king. And he was in his tent. trying to figure out what to do. Notice verse 33, then Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. What do you know about war, David? All you've been doing is taking care of sheep. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and, and from the paw of the bear, he would deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And so again, the contrast we see, Saul's like, David, seriously, you can't go up against this guy. He was looking at things from a, just a fleshly, earthly, okay, David, you're like this little dude and he's this monster of a guy, seriously? He was sizing things up kind of in a self-sufficient, self-reliant, what can we do in our own flesh, right? And David's like, what are you talking about? That doesn't matter. I've taken on lions, I've taken on bears, they were twice my size. Why? Because the Lord delivered me from these things. And the Lord will deliver me from this, this giant of a man. And so Saul said to David, well, go and may the Lord be with you. It sounds good. Maybe it seems like David convinced him that, that the, hey, if the Lord's with you, you can do it. But then notice verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head and he clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. And David took them off. And you can imagine, right? Saul was a big guy, head and shoulders above the average Israelite. And so his armor was probably massive in and of itself. And so here's David, little David in, in, in this armor, right? It's like maybe his head wasn't even peeking off the top. I don't know, but right, he's in this armor. He's like, I, I, what, I can't use this. I don't know how to function in this. This is like, this is not what I'm used to. I'm, I'm used to just, I got, I got my club and I got my, my stick and, or my, my slingshot and some rocks. That's how, I'm good with that. That's how I roll. And I can't wear this. Well, again, what was, what was Saul Assuming, hey, it's all about how strong you are, how big you are. Hey, how well armored you are. Here, put on my armor. Yeah, you can trust the Lord, but you better have armor on, right? Verse 40, 
he took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had even in his pouch. And his sling was in the hand and he approached the Philistine. Of course, you know how this goes, but we'll read it anyway, right? Then the Philistines came on, the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. He sees this little guy coming out with a stick in his hand. What do you think, am I a dog? Verse 44 The Philistine also said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear and a javelin, but I come to you with my slingshot. Is that what he said? No, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have been talking smack to. Whom you have taunted. This day, the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, right? Here's Goliath saying, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do this. And David doesn't say, well, I'm gonna do this. No, he said, the Lord's gonna do this. He'll deliver you up into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth and all the earth may know, that all the earth may know that I'm such a powerful guy. No, that they may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear or by slingshot for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David that David ran quickly toward the battle line of to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead and the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Like, man, David was such a good shot, man. All that practice he had out in the wilderness. Listen, David couldn't have missed. It's not how how good David was with a slingshot. You could have been out there. I could have been out there having never done it. And guess what? That Goliath, that, 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 that giant was coming down. He was going down. Why? Because it was the Lord. It wasn't David. And so we see his dependence on the Lord. Again, in contrast to Saul's self-sufficiency, self-reliance. Look at, um, just quickly, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 28. And, and we just see a, a really sad scenario of how bad it actually got for Saul. And, and, and if you know the story after um, David killed Goliath, everybody was praising David and Saul has killed his hundreds, but David his thousands and right. And he was the hero. And, and so Saul got jealous and he began, um, he felt threatened by David. And so he's, he kind of went in and out of this kind of, not that I agree with his psychological diagnosis, but he was kind of a bipolar personality. One day he was wanting David to come and play on his harp and, and soothe his soul. Next thing he was picking up his spear and throwing it at him and chasing him all over the wilderness, trying to kill him. But once again, Saul finds himself with his back against the wall. The Philistines have gathered once again to make war with the Israelites 
And in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 3, it says, Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him, and he buried him in Ramah, his own city, and Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. You're like, oh, that's a good move, Saul. Okay. That was a good idea. That was a good move. A good, you were obeying the Lord there. So the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped in Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. It actually said that the Spirit of the Lord left him because of his disobedience. Then Saul said to his servants, seek for me a woman who is a medium that I may gain to her, go, go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. This is the story of the witch of Endor. So here's Saul. He, he gets all the mediums and spirits removed from the land, which was a good move. But then he's like, hey, can you guys uh, find me a medium? Can you, can you find me a, a palm reader, a fortune teller? And then Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night and said, conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. But the woman said, behold, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. Now, there's all sorts of issues we could discuss here about, whoa, what's going on here? Why did this work? And why did Samuel come up and come back from the dead and all this kind of stuff? I don't want to go there this morning. Just interesting, though, to see that when Samuel shows up, of course, the medium is scared. Oh, no, she's figured out this is Saul. And why did you do this to me? You've, you've tricked me. But nevertheless, here was Samuel. Saul knew it was Samuel. He bowed with his own face to the ground and did homage. Verse 14, look at verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? So all the Samuel's like, oh, great, it's you again. I thought I was done with you. I gotta deal with you again. And Saul answered, I'm greatly distressed for the Philistines are waging war against me and God has departed from me and no longer answers me either through prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may make known to me what I should do. I need some advice, Samuel, please. Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? The Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through me for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, to David. Why? As you did not obey the Lord. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. And as you know, um, the next day, um, Saul and his sons were killed. In fact, Saul actually committed suicide. He fell on his own sword. And really a sad ending of a self-sufficient, self-reliant life. It doesn't end well when you trust in yourself and the things of this earth rather than trusting, depending on the Lord. 
And so if you are obedient and if you're dependent, then you qualify as a person after God's own heart. But there's one more, I think, essential trait, and and this is really where we come full circle and say, okay, maybe this is why God declared David to be a man after his own heart. Because we know that David wasn't always obedient. He wasn't always dependent. There were some times that he feigned madness, that he acted like he was a crazy man uh, so that he wouldn't get captured or killed. And so he wasn't necessarily trusting the Lord. He took matters into his own hands. So, so, so David wasn't always obedient. He wasn't always dependent. But thirdly, this is, the, this is the key, okay? He was repentant. He was repentant. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And this is where we find that tragic account of David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. And again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read this account, maybe just the first few verses. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Reba. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David rose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, almost like any way you should put in the text there. He he knew who she was. He knew she was a married woman. Apparently, other people knew she was a married woman. But he took her anyway, and when she came to him, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And here's the sticker. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. David was in a pickle. What was he going to do? Well, this was more now, this was more than just a one night stand. This was, I've gotten another man's wife pregnant. And so he thinks to himself, how can I cover this up? And so his natural thought is, hey, I just need to get Uriah off the, the battlefield, bring him home reward him with a, a time with his wife. He can go home and, and, and be with his wife and, 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 and nobody will know. They'll just assume that, that, you know, they conceived when, you know, the timing was about when Uriah came off the, the front lines. And so, as you know, the story goes, uh, Uriah comes back and, and uh, David kisses up to him. Hey, how's it going out there? Hey, I just wanted you to come home. Appreciate all you're doing. By the way, Uriah was one of David's mighty men which just adds another level of drama to this whole thing and just how, how, this, how, how he was so unloyal to a man who had been so loyal to him. And so he says, hey, why don't you just go home and, and, and enjoy an evening with your wife and, and, and I'll see you tomorrow. And so he wakes up the next morning and finds out that Uriah didn't go home. He slept on the, the doorstep of the, of the, of the palace. And he's like, why didn't you go home? And Uriah's like, well, hey, why should I be able to enjoy my wife when all the other guys are out on the front lines? No way. 
I mean, talk about a loyal guy, right? And so David says, okay, well, well, we'll send you back tomorrow. And so that evening he gets him drunk thinking, right, if he loses inhibitions, he's gonna naturally make it home, sleep with his wife and, you know, problem solved and I'll, I'll have covered my tracks. Well, even a drunk Uriah had more integrity than a sober David or a sinning David because he slept again at, with the servants. And when David realized that he wasn't gonna get this guy to go home, no matter what he tried, he had no other choice but to send a note with him and to tell Joab, hey, put him in the front lines and, and where the battle is the fiercest. And then without him knowing, I want you to call retreat so that he gets killed. Talk about the integrity that David or the confidence David had in this man's integrity. He put his death, basically, no, in his hand and trusted him to get it to Joab without looking at it. And so that's what happened. And Joab did what David commanded him to do. And he sent a servant back and he said, hey, tell David that, um, that uh, we lost the battle, but that, that, that Uriah is dead. And so he did. And, and as you know, the story goes, um, verse 26, now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife then she bore him a son, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then you got some white space in your Bibles before chapter 12. Let me suggest to you what was going on in that white space. There was probably about 12 months, an entire year, David covered up his sin. And it says in Psalm 32, he writes this, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You say, well, when did he do that? How could he say how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered? How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit? In other words, I got nothing to hide. Well, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1, here, here comes Nathan, the prophet. And he confronts David, tells him a story about two guys, one with a lot of sheep, one with one sheep, and somebody comes and you know, to, to dinner at the rich man's house and he, instead of killing one of his own sheep, he goes and kills the one sheep of this poor man. And David's like, that guy deserves to die. Who is that guy? I want to, you tell me, you show me who that guy is and I'm going to kill him myself. And Nathan said, you're the man. I'm talking about you, David. That story's about you. And he goes on to talk about how, man, David, the Lord has blessed you. He's given you all these things. Why have you despised 
the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight. Verse 9, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, having taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, here it is, I have sinned against the Lord. You're like, okay. Saul said that. Didn't really mean it. How do we know that David really meant it? What was different about David saying, I have sinned, than when Saul said, I have sinned? Well, notice, Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Samuel never said that to Saul. Hey, don't worry, pal. The Lord's taken away your sin. Never said that. What can we assume? God doesn't forgive people if they're not truly repentant. Obviously, David was truly repentant or God would not have forgiven him. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So that child that was conceived in sin ended up dying. So there was consequences for, even though he was forgiven for his sin, there was consequences that he had to live with. So Nathan went to his house. Again, some more white space there before the account of the child dying. What happened there? Well, I don't have to suggest to you what happened there. I can tell you exactly what happened there in that white space after verse 15. Look at Psalm 51. Turn over to Psalm 51. And check out the the, the subtitle here. For the choir director, a psalm of David. We're like, okay, I'm used to hearing that. But this is very specific. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so I think as Nathan turned and walked away and went back to his home, David was left there to deal with his sin. Just him and the Lord. And I imagine that he fell down on his face before the Lord. And this is what he said. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that, when you're, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. In other words, I deserve whatever I've got coming to me. Notice, in contrast to Saul, he is taking full responsibility for his sin. He's not justifying his sin. He's not, he's not making excuses for his sin. He's not blaming others for his sin. It's all on him. Verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I'm a sinner, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. 
Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And here it is. Create in me a clean what? Heart. Here it is. We're getting to the heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me like you did, Saul. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. In other words, I'll, I'll help other people not do what I did. I'll, I'll share my testimony and I'll encourage others not to be a fool Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, and the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. I haven't sung for a year. It's been hard to sing because I've been living with a secret sin. And see if this rings a bell. Verse 16, for you do not delight in what? Sacrifice. Otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. He remembered that whole deal back in 1 Samuel 15. Hey, what? The Lord does not delight in sacrifice as much as he delights in obedience. Verse 17, here it is. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite, what? Heart. Oh God, you will not despise. If you've ever wondered how could David sin so badly and God still referred to him as a man after his own heart, all you need to do is read Psalm 51. That's the answer. That clears up the contradiction. The enigma goes away when you read Psalm 51. You're like, oh, I get it. Nothing reveals what's in a person's heart more than what comes out of their mouth when they pray. The Bible says that the, the, the mouth speaks out of the overflow of the what? Of the heart. And when we, we, we heard some things that came out of Saul's mouth that came from a wicked heart and we're hearing things that are coming out of David's mouth that are coming from a, a heart that's after God's. And I think really you could take the story of Saul and David, it's a, really a classic case study in the difference between what Paul referred to in 2 Corinthians 7 as worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. One that you just feel bad about your sin and one you actually feel so bad about it, you, you stop it. You repent of it. Listen, David... while he was the only person ever referred to in the Bible as a man after God's own heart, I think he serves as an example for all of us to follow so we too can be considered a person after God's own heart. But this is not just about going home and being more like David. Because ultimately, God intended the life of King David to point to another king who was a descendant of David, but who was far greater than David. David was greater than Saul, but he was still a sinner. Jesus 
was greater than David. And again, one last time, look at Acts 13. Again, we're looking at the context here. And, and let's, let's end here in Acts 13, verse 22. After he had removed him, he raised David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Check out the context. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. Jesus makes it possible for us to be a man or a woman or a teenager or a kid after God's own heart. And how he does that is, how he makes it possible is because he did that. He did what, what is said in verse 22 who will do all my will. That's what Jesus did. That's why he came. And over and over again in the Gospel of John in particular, it says things like, I have come to do my Father's will. I always do what is pleasing to the Lord. Not my will, but yours be done. That was the life of Jesus. And so Jesus is the only man who ever lived who perfectly reflected God's heart. Kind of helps when you're God, right? But he's the only man who ever lived a perfect, sinless life, impeccably reflected God's heart, and yet was punished for our sin on the cross. He died for David's sin on the cross. He died for your sin. He died for my sin on the cross. So that we, who are imperfect sinners, could be considered by God to be after his heart. And so ultimately, if you want to be a man or woman or teenager or a kid after God's own heart, you need to put your trust in. You need to depend on, put your hope in Jesus Christ. Not just for your salvation, but for your sanctification. For you to grow and mature to be more and more obedient, more and more dependent, more and more repentant. A person after God's own heart is like Jesus in that they long and they strive to, to be and to do everything that God wants them to, to be and do. Let's pray. Father, uh, this is good for us to consider because we all recognize how far we fall short. When we consider that phrase, a, a man, a person after God's own heart, we're like, well, man, I, I just know myself too well and there's a lot of wicked stuff in my heart that doesn't reflect the heart of God. And while we're grateful for David and, and the great example that he was and is to us, his example pales in comparison to the ultimate David, the, the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending your son 
to live the perfect life that we could never live and to die the death that we all deserve to die so that we could be considered that when you look at us through the righteousness of Christ, that you can say that we are a man or a woman or a teenager or a kid after your own heart. Lord, I pray that we would not run out of here today working harder, trying to do better, but that we would trust more in the person and work of Jesus Christ to make us who you want us to be, we pray in his name, amen.